You're listening to Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Welcome to episode 172 of the Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong podcast. I'm Dave Roberts. With me is owner of the Georgia Virtue, journalist, TV personality, dog mom, Jessica Salagi. I feel like you're teeing that up for a reason. No, no, no. Uh, other than you did you did share some of your mean tweets today or mm-hmm. uh, last week or wh- whenever it was. And, my and I, mean tweets. My I, I love how you know that's just great. Oh yeah, it's it's great. I want I want to call your boss. You're like, good luck. I own the company. Yeah, well, you can call me. Yeah, I'm going to call the Better Business Bureau. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> jokes on you. We're not a member. Um, <laughs> good luck. Well, what, I mean, what's she going to do? Give you give you one star for journalistic integrity? I don't know, but I mean. Someone was like, what she, I think, I don't know if it was Ken Poland or someone, it was someone in the sub thread of where this all was taking place. It was like, what's she going to do? Call your mom next? Um, which was be hilarious because my mom is like way more savage than I am at times. So. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, the apple did not fall far from the tree on that one. <laughs> yeah. What's funny is. Yeah, everybody has a has this image of you as being mean and gruff, and you're one of the sweetest people I know. Well, you, yeah, I mean, that's I think that has to do with your age and the fact that I like take the community service approach with you. <laughs> Just a sweet old man. <laughs> Either that, or we get along because we're both the same kind of mean. Yeah, that's probably more accurate. <laughs> Well, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's a dong on a drone. Yes, I said dong. Best mm-hmm. story of the week. Thank you, Eric, for sharing this with us. <laughs> so Give credit where credit's due. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I assume Eric was looking up drone stuff, not marital aids. But mm. <laughs> the, the, the opening line of the article. This is on Vice. Is Nobody expects a flying dildo. <laughs> Albuquerque <laughs> Sheriff uh, Manuel Gonzalez III, uh, whose campaign for mayor was dramatically interrupted at an event last Tuesday by a large interrupted <laughs> by a large <laughs> sex toy attached to a drone. <laughs> it gets funnier like every time you read the story because it sounds like I thought I had to read it all the way to the end to because I thought it was satire yeah oh no I was ex- totally expecting this to uh, me to look at the source on it and it'd be the Babylon B or something like that <clears throat> nope. nope nope I mean <laughs> Vice puts out some some dicey stuff but they're they're a legitimate source uh the drone hovered toward Gonzalez as he was answering confrontational questions from a member of the audience, and it provoked nervous laughter from the crowd of about 70 people. Uh, he And, look, I, I got total respect for this. He could try to continue on with his speech. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here, folks. It's just a pecker hovering above you. <laughs> I mean, what choice do you have? Uh, you know, you... If you if you're a skilled at improv and quick witted, you you go ahead and you talk about it. 
You know, instead of playing victim and all that stuff. But it's a hilarious video. Uh, the Twitter account is Dongcopter505. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't, you don't actually hear his speech in it. You just see this, this, uh, this quad uh, drone with a uh, marital aid hanging from the bottom of it, just kind of <laughs> flopping around as it hovers around the sheriff running for mayor. It's terrible. Oh, it's awesome! It's uh, it's awesome. the The sheriff uh, Gonzalez uh, accused his opponent of coordinating it, and so the guy tries to go get his drone back. Someone snatched the drone out of the air when he got close enough to the ground, snatched it, and threw it down. So the guy goes to retrieve it, and at that point, <clears throat> he is accused of hitting the sheriff in the hand. Uh. Not a crime. It's it's very weird because because I, I you know I I didn't see in an interview with, with the with the dong pilot, but it's totally plausible because I've done stuff like that too. Is because I talk with talk with my hands as I'm gesturing with my hands now. And I've, I smack the mic. I've been smacked smack, smack the table, uh, that kind of stuff. Because because I, I talk with my hands, you would think I was Italian. Uh, so it's totally possible that he was making a point and forcefully was ha- and and touched the sheriff, but it's he's got like some misdemeanor uh, battery charge on him, which I think is going to uh, uh, is going to go away. But the guy, uh, his name is uh, is Dreyer, says that he's not working for the opponent. He doesn't like any any one of them. And guess which party he claims to be to be a member of. <laughs> That's right. The party that has a, a candidate with a boot on his head, libertarian. Nice. But it's to- it's totally libertarian thing to do, isn't it? Thri- fly a sex toy at a candidate? Yes. I, yes. I can't say that has ever crossed my mind, but um. Now it has. <laughs> well, I mean, no. You're just gonna have a. No. <laughs> Dildo uh, uh, donned drones flying around Screven County. No. <laughs> not happening. People talk enough about me. I'm not, I'm not going to. Well, you'd have to have a registered by. drone pilot. And I'd, have to be, I'd have to be Eric. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of peckerheads and sheriffs, we have an update on a story we covered Kemp has suspended Clayton County Sheriff Victor Hill. I guess I have to eat my words a little bit because I didn't think that they would be very impartial because one of them was a sheriff. However, it was um, the sheriff on the committee was um, from Burke County, Alfonso, and and people freaking love him and he he's pretty by the book. But um, anyway, the committee recommended to Kemp that there was there were conflicts that. Um, Victor Hill should not continue serving, pending, you know, the court stuff. And so this is the guy accused of strapping a minor to a restraint chair. Mm-hmm. And so, so common that it wasn't even a discussion with the deputy. It was just one word chair. And there were there's four pretrial detainees that this was this supposedly happened to with the chair um at some point again pre-trial like they hadn't done anything to warn it 
other than maybe being mouthy or. Look, it's, it's one of those things where I, I get the I get the inclination. If you've got somebody who you're convinced is guilty and they're and they're being a jerk, uh, but you have to be a professional. You have to be better than everybody else. You have to be above it. You have to be above retribution. Well, that's what you're elected for. Like you're elected to be the bigger person. Right. And look, it's we've talked about before with with no matter how bad a fight is, in this case with a deputy, uh, you've got somebody running, trying to get away, and it comes to a fist fight. The minute the, the cuffs go on, it stops. You put your hand on their head so they don't bump it going into the car. And, and once once it's over, it's like a football play. The whistle's blown. It's over. You're not a punisher. So uh, anyway, we, we, we covered that uh, two or three weeks ago. But uh, it is, uh, I mean, it's that's a good suspension. I mean, unfortunately, he'll continue to uh, get paid. Yeah, well. Yeah, well, and, you know, the federal court system, it, it could take two years before he actually sees inside of a courtroom. I hope it's not that long, but Jim Beck hasn't seen anything, so. Exactly. And Beck may be dead before before he actually gets a court date. And of course, COVID helps snowball all that. I certainly appreciate your optimism. It's helpful. I'm just a ray of sunshine, aren't I? Mm-hmm. So, speaking of Ray Sunshine here, Georgia's high court finds man not intellectually disabled enough for death penalty exemption. Yeah, the story or the the ruling from the Georgia Supreme Court came down last, I guess, Tuesday, the day after Memorial Day holiday. Um, And it, you know, I get the summaries of the rulings and... uh, prompted me to go read the whole thing and it's a really upsetting case like so this guy um Rodney Young he is in prison obviously he was sentenced to death in um for a March 2008 murder of his former girlfriend's son um in Newton County and he was indicted um, for malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault, and burglary. Um, you know, he went through the trial. They found him guilty. They said um, that they did not believe he was had an intellectual disability. At that time, our state still referred to it as um, being mentally retarded, which kind of – it, Yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to read, but that is, as you quote in the article – that is the legal definition of, of what they were using. So that, that's that's not you throw, throwing that word around uh, willy-nilly. And I know people don't like the word, but that is that is literally the word that is in the law. It is. And, and we have since changed it. But because of the timing of um, like the fact that this started before the law was changed, there's several references to it in his file, filings by his attorneys and then also by... Um, the Supreme Court justices in their opinions. And so, and they repeatedly made references, like they made a huge point to point out that, you know, that's what happened, but it's, you know, you can't change, you can't go back and retroactively change court documents like that. So anyway, um, he, even at his original trial back in 2008, um, 
they brought forth evidence on the defense side that said, um, you know, that Young had been in special education courses. He was classified as mentally retarded by his school. And therefore, he and to, to do that when he was tested, he had an IQ test, he would score between a 60 and a 69. And there was testimony that he had struggled intellectually in academics and in sports. Um, but the jurors at the time said, well, there was no expert testimony regarding his alleged in intellectual disability and they didn't present any actual IQ results so we don't um we're not going to take that and as a side note for me like that's really a thing of ineffective counsel like the jury is holding I, I don't know I, I'm just I think that's a terrible reason not to and then another part of that is that the state presented testimony um from an expert who did not evaluate Young um but said that these are some of the character traits that a person who has an intellectual disability has. And these are character traits that someone who does not have an intellectual disability has. And he spoke generally. And so the jury took that as, well, he's an expert and that's that. So in 2012, which is amazing to me, four years after um, the crime occurred, they sent, they found him guilty um, and sentenced him to death. So, um, just like as a background, cause we were talking about this before the show, um, you know, a lot of times people, the death, people on death row get a bad rap for like dragging out the process and just filing things to slow the process down. But, um, he actually filed for an, a new trial a month after he was found guilty. And again, in September, 2017, and again in April, 2019, and it wasn't until June of 2019. So over seven years later that, they finally took the case and like put it on the docket and and started the procedural process with the Supreme court in Georgia. And then they just heard it in March. Granted we had the delay because of COVID, but still like that's an incredibly long process that was mostly out of his hands. So, um, well, you know, the, the ineffectual, uh, representation, the, I don't blame the jury on this one. You cannot assume facts not in evidence. So th- that was that defense attorney's job was was to present the the best case to to save. I his disagree. Client. I disagree. The state had an obligation to prove that he was not mentally retarded quote, or intellectually disabled. The state had the duty to prove that that was not the case. Oh, absolutely. It, the onerous is on the state. But that that defense attorney really, really dropped the ball on it. It's what, from what it sounds, sounds from reading, reading it, I, I obviously wasn't at the trial, wasn't privy to everything that the, the jury was privy to. But well, obviously this, it's accurate because you read it on the Georgia Virtue. But well, absolutely. I mean, the chick knows that usually puts out some good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's this is something that should have come up immediately, if not during the trial itself, during the sentencing phase. And you know, again, we're talking about what's what's average IQ now? Ninety. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about somebody who's you go much below sixty, and you're. You're not functioning, you know. So, 
I think I think seventy. The, the, the line is at seventy. You get you get much below seventy, and and you have a hard time functioning in society. But the fact that they the defense attorney never brought this up it, during the sentencing phase, during the trial itself, and you know you have a note here, and it, it's obviously a note in, in the story on the Georgia virtue. No one is asking for this guy to get let out of prison. You're right. He's not said I didn't do it. His attorneys aren't saying I didn't do it. They're just saying please commute this sentence to life in prison. Now, what really upset me, and I read, so the ruling is the it was is by um, Justice Melton, who's the one that's retiring. He was the chief justice. And um, it was 126 pages. And then there was a special concurrence and then also a dissent. So there was a lot of opinion on this. And... I don't. I don't like Justice Melton. I. I'm glad he's retiring. Um, I. I don't agree with most of what he says or does, and, and so, you know, I. I think he. I, I just. I'm, I'm not a fan of him. But one of the other justices who wrote the concurring opinion, he said, specifically, like this. I felt like this. He and he has done this before. Like, in in his, um, opinions, he has almost. He has stopped short of directing the legislature to do something, but has pretty much said, like, you need to do something. Because we are the only state in the nation that requires a defendant to prove their position of being intellectually disabled beyond a reasonable doubt. Everyone else is just beyond a, um, or the, based on a preponderance of evidence. We're the only state that has a standard that high. And the standard is so high that no person ever has been has has fallen into the exemption of the death penalty because of it. That's a strong statement. And it's true. I mean, no, no, I, I agree. But it's, it's it's a strong statement. It's a, we are the only state that puts the onerous on the defendant to well, prove beyond a, or the convicted person to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That you're too uh, mentally They're not even limited. convicted yet, though. Well, that's true. And and so so the the same constitutional protections apply. And and not only that, but like if they, let's just be real about it, why even have the standard if if Georgia is just okay with putting intellectually disabled individuals to death? Like if you're gonna say that you have a standard that is so high that no one can reach it, and that if anyone is on that line, we're just gonna go ahead and put them to death anyway. Just say that. Don't don't make these people go through these ridiculous hurdles of trying to, you know. So anyway, Melton said that, you know, we're relying on our previous decisions to uphold Georgia standard of proof. There's nothing unconstitutional about it. Um, you know, yes, other states have only I'm sorry. It's clear and convincing evidence standards in the other states, not preponderance of evidence. That's I'm not thinking of the right thing, but clear and convincing. But um well, I guess it's similar to this. I don't I don't know, but it's not the same. There's just everyone else he so he acknowledged that everyone else was at a lower threshold and um basically said like which I, I understand that when another ruling like I understand that press that's the this is the entire problem with precedent. These people relied on the Ray Cromarty case 
for some of their justifications in denying Rodney Young's motions for new trial or to have a commuted sentence or to strike this as unconstitutional. That case was flawed. Like when Ray Cromartie was put to death, there was all kinds of evidence that was excluded. The family, the the victim of the family or the family of the victim, they were all objecting to him being put to death. And but they relied on on the rulings in that case to make the decisions on that. And my, in my opinion, that was one of the worst cases George ever had when they put him to death in November 2019. And we relied on how we got to his final days to to make the case for this one, even though Cromartie didn't have any intellectual abil- or disabilities. And one of the worst things that I feel like they decided, aside from whether or not, you know, he was intellectually disabled enough, is that they just rely on from a procedural point of view that there's no problem, that it's that it's not unconstitutional from a procedural point. Well, and that's exactly, you know, how Cromartie ended up meeting his demise was it was purely procedural. <clears throat> Well, we can't possibly consider this because it wasn't filed on time. Uh, you know, if uh, I don't know if you've ever, you've ever read Douglas Adams' uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but he pokes fun at this sort of thing with it, with one of the species of aliens of being procedural, that everything is done on a form, that, that they can do whatever they want to to you, but everything's got to be done on on what, what this form, that form, you wait in line. Uh, so that's, it is scary the way the state puts people to death, and that is, it's just a procedure. And I can't consider anything that's not filed within a certain time frame. Uh, can't can't consider uh, can't consider this because we we don't have beyond a reasonable doubt. But we can show through this man's entire life that he has always been and and. He always had problems with with cognition. That he was he was he was in special education classes. It doesn't mean that everybody in special education uh, and you know, is is a sixty IQ, but it, we we can show his entire life that this has been a problem. So you have all this evidence to say this that he didn't uh, get to prison, get the get the uh, death sentence, and then start saying, "Oh no no no, I've I've got all these disabilities. You can't possibly do that do that to me." So I don't want to skim over the um, the justice who direct what I said. He stopped short of directing the legislature. But what he said in his opinion was um, young and his advocates are also welcome to try to persuade the people of Georgia through their elected representatives to revisit Georgia Code 177131C3 in light of extensive developments in the science of intellectual disability and the law in this area since the statute was enacted more than three decades ago. If the General Assembly takes a further humane step with regard to criminal defendants who are potentially intellectually disabled, I would embrace that change. Like, that says everything. Well, he says, not on me, man. Yeah, yeah but this- it says everything about the what we have in place. Right, but you're going to die, but don't worry, we'll fix it in the future. Yeah, because it's a procedural thing. And Kemp, and- of course, is going to be running for re-election. So he's not going to commute the sentence. He can't. Can he not? In Georgia, that's why Ray Cromartie was put to death. And only the state board of pardons and paroles has the authority. Now, if I had been Kemp when Ray Cromartie was 
facing those hours, I would have removed every person on that damn board until I found people who would commute his freaking sentence. But Kemp does not have the authority under Georgia law to stay in execution like that. Well, you know, that's... It's disgusting. And look, and nobody is saying let him out of prison. No one is saying he should ever walk free again. All they're saying is we don't kill people who don't understand what's going on. So Justice Bethel was the one that wrote the dissenting opinion. And he said, you know, we have learned that states are not authorized to enforce legislative rules or judicial tests that by design or operation create, quote, an unacceptable risk that persons with intellectual disability will be executed. The question before us then is whether Georgia's requirement that a defendant prove his or her own intellectual disability beyond a reasonable doubt creates an unacceptable risk that an intellectually disabled person will be executed. Here, the existence of such a risk seems plain. Yeah, he said what I did, but really, really smart. Yeah, but why couldn't... <laughs> what's wrong What's wrong with his his friends? Man, I don't know. I don't. I. I don't think we're going to see a change in the law anytime soon, because there is no appetite with lawmakers to do that. Because as soon as you do, the sheriff's association comes out, uh, and we hear they're soft on crime. They're soft on crime. They're soft on crime. I, I would. I would be shocked to see it change le- legislatively. Shocked. It's gonna it's gonna take it's gonna take a, a, a watershed moment for that to happen. And I don't know that it is really hard because you talk about you know, he's convicted of murder. And it's it as soon as you say that, people shut down. Voters shut down. And all you're gonna see on a on a campaign flyer is that uh state rep so and so uh, voted to take uh, murderers off death row, soft on crime. Uh, you know they don't, they don't yeah, stand for law and order. Yeah, but at least they could look at themselves in the freaking mirror. No, I agree with you. I, this difference between wanting to be elected and being principled. Not to mention it would ne- it would never get past the speaker. It would it would get shut down immediately. It would never make it out of committee. How we got to replace Ralston? Well, if he runs for Senate. Oh, oh, from your lips to God's ears. I'm just scared he might win. Yeah, but he can't do any damage in the Senate. He'll vote along party lines and he can't do any damage. He won't be in leadership. He's, he's what, 68 years old or something like that? Ever. Yeah, most of the people up there are going to have way more seniority than he does. And I understand there's only 100 senators, so. Uh, they get more committee assignments and stuff, but he's not going to be a be a, a ch- committee chair or anything else uh, anytime soon. It'd be sixty eight. You do two terms of six years each, you know, and he's eighty. So I, he could do far less damage to the state of Georgia as a senator than he can as Speaker of the House because he has entirely too much power. Plus, if he if he goes to the Senate. All those cases that he that he's been sitting on, they all go to trial. 
So I mean, it's not, it's not my. He would not be my my first my first pick, but the fact that it, that he would have to he would have to step down from his house seat in order to do that is uh, uh, would be would be preferable, and and, and there's a good chance he wouldn't survive the primary. I, I don't think he's in any position to run a statewide race. He's got the money. I don't think he's got the notoriety. He's not likable. He's not attractive. He's not overly well spoken. He sucks. Yeah, he's a, dishe- he's a disheveled, fat old fart. And he's going to be running against somebody who's well put together, well spoken, wrong on most things, but but presents very, very well uh, on on the Democrat side and whoever else runs on on the Republican side. I think he he would he would he, it would be tough for him. But if his ego is pushing him that way, Godspeed, Mr. Speaker. Good luck. Now, on the on the tail end of that tirade, this is a good time to remind you that these are our opinions and not those of anyone, not on the show or any respective company for which maybe we may work, own, or otherwise associate ourselves with on a regular or irregular basis. So we have... The opposition, and we've had this on the show for for a couple weeks uh, on on our outline, and never had uh, the time to to give it the 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 deep dive that it deserves. Opposition to critical race theory intensifies in Georgia. <clears throat> if you don't know what critical race theory is or CRT, uh, is by definition seemingly uh, comes from the Education Weekly quote an academic concept. That is more than 40 years old. The core idea is that racism is a social construct and is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems and policies. But it's important to read the tenets of it because, you know, I think a lot of people are reading headlines and seeing, you know, two and three minute sound bites on pundit shows. And I'm, I'm not saying those discussions aren't good, but the tenets of it are more alarming to me than the definition or the concept because. Well, we have uh, recognition that race is not biologically real, but is socially constructed and socially significant. It recognizes that science as demonstrated, the human genome program project refutes the idea of biological racial differences. Then we have acknowledgement that racism is a normal feature of society and is embedded within systems and institutions. C, a rejection of popular understanding about racism, such as arguments that confine racism to a few bad apples. And lastly, recognition of the relevance of people's everyday lives to scholarship. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter like they don't if you say, well, I'm not racist or I wasn't raised racist or I, you know, I don't I don't see color and uh, they don't care about that. These critical race theory um, believers, they care about the outcomes um, because it's the unintended but foreseeable consequences of choices. Right. It's a verb, not a noun. (laughs) man this is all sorts of 
convoluted and, and messed up. So even though you are not a racist and you don't treat people differently based on, uh, Your based beliefs. on, yeah, but, but, but the, you're inherently racist because that's just the way society is. And this Correct. is, this is the way liberalism has succeeded in this country. And this, this goes back to the fifties and sixties. Uh, and all the way through through the 70s, where classic liberalism embedded itself in education. When a lot of conservatives were going out and going to work and stuff like that, they were going deep into the education. Is History is what we say it is because we put it in the books. That you could take these little skulls full of mush and mold them because you spend more waking hours with your with your teachers than you do with your parents. So Particularly if, you, if you've got if you've got working parents or a, a one parent household, uh, something like that, you've, you've got you get these little skulls full of mush that get to be shaped eight hours a day or however, however long they're in class. And then if they're good, you send them off to college and then they then they really get uh get locked away because you don't see your parents, but I don't know, once a month you go home and do laundry. So you're, 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 you're surrounded with it and influenced by it. Sorry, Jess. No, I just, so there were some examples in, in some of the research that I had set aside about what they consider to be the, you know, inherently racist, I guess, uh, verbs of, of critical race theory happening around us. But so the 1930s example was that government officials drew lines around areas deemed poor, um, financial risks often explicitly due to racial composition of inhabits. Banks subsequently refused to offer mortgages to black people in those areas. Now, single family zoning that prevents the building of affordable housing in advantaged majority white neighborhoods and thus stymies racial desegregation efforts. Um, those are not apples to apples at all, first of all. Uh, and second, I am the last person who will ever advocate for zoning. Um, I hate code enforcement. I hate zoning laws. And But it's I have watched government meeting after government meeting, and not once has it ever has zoning ever been about anything other than my property values. Property values and tax. I just we just got our proposed tax bill, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really the the drive from government on on zoning. It has nothing to do with affordable housing. It has nothing to do with the people that are coming in. It is one hundred percent about raising the value of the homes so they can collect more tax. And 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 they'll and they'll openly admit that in meetings. Is we we need houses that are three hundred thousand plus because that's the whatever the number is, but that's that's the breaking point in which the average household has a neutral impact on county services, whether it be schools or parks or whatever else. So these municipalities, it's 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 about it's money driven. As far as redlining goes, you know, I, I, coming out of the army, I went, I went into banking. That's been gone for, for quite some time. And look, what redlining was, 
is you looked at areas that were poor credit risks. And you say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to put a branch in, in that area mm-hmm. because it's a waste of money. I can't, I can't lend to people with 500 credit scores. But the, the Fed has gone complete opposite to where you have the Community Reinvestment Act, CRA. Banks can't just close branches. Uh, if they can lose their charter, they can lose their ability to to expand. Uh, there's a banks just they can't. You, even if you change the hours of a of a branch location, there's a bunch of hoops to jump through to justify why you're changing the hours. Or you were open six days a week, so you had Saturday hours, but now you want to eliminate Saturdays. Uh, you've, you've had to, there's a bunch of hoops to jump through to make sure that redlining doesn't happen. It has institutionally changed. And I can't blame bankers from the thirties for not taking poor risks on credit. You mean after the depression? Right. I mean, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I don't know. Well, yeah, you have... Are you going to go and put money into something with very little upside and tons of downside? Well, you are if you have a branch system of uh, 2,000 branches and you want to be able to expand to 2,500 branches and go f- go expand into other states and be involved in mergers and all that stuff. The, the Federal Reserve puts a gun to the back of the banker's head and says, no, you, no, you will service this community. So I'm not you know, I'm not coming out uh, you know saying that I'm absolutely for redlining because it it's an outdated concept because so many people are transient now uh, areas that I I never thought would would would, would come back uh, Kirkwood in, in downtown Atlanta was I mean was a crack neighborhood and some investors went in there start started flipping houses and and putting putting some lipstick on those pigs and and started they start they they flipped those neighborhoods and they started having nicer houses uh so what we think of traditional redlining just doesn't exist anymore because you you, you can have a a million dollar home in the same neighborhood as a shack particularly in the in the city centers like in Atlanta Edgewood same thing uh so Redline just it doesn't exist anymore. To even use that as a as a justification for why institutions are racist it is absurd. A bank doesn't care what color your skin is. They care you're green. That's all you are to a bank. You're green. How do I make money off of you? I want to I want to take I want to pay you this little interest and char and take your money and lend it to that guy at at a margin of four percent whatever margin they're using. That's all a bank cares about. Sorry, Jess. No, I, I, I'm with you. And, you know, to me, it kind of resembles the um, what we talked about last week with the socially disadvantaged farmers. You know, yes. Did those things happen in 1930? Yes. Does it look bad on paper? Yes. But that's not what's happening right now. I mean, the number of programs that are available, like you said, and, and the way that our banking system is operating right now is so it's a is a mirror in a, it no I, 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 absolutely it's it doesn't happen anymore the underwriters 
And I was probably the last generation of banker that actually had lending authority in my own office. Uh, that's just not the way it's done anymore. Everything's done with central underwriting. That underwriter has no idea what race you are. To that underwriter, you are a debt-to-income and credit score. That's it. Are you a good credit risk? Uh, your your DTI is at 60%, debt-to-income is at 60%. Well, no, this person can't afford another loan. And, and that's all they're looking at. They don't look at where you get your income from. So they do. you don't have to disclose separate maintenance or child support or anything else. But they cannot is not considered when it goes into the computer program. Uh, the fact that you that you are getting child support or you're on a uh, on a welfare program or anything else doesn't come up because it the 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 computer systems that we use now. I say we. I've been on banking for a long time, but the computer systems don't take that into consideration. All that gets wiped, and all they see are the numbers. They don't, the, the name is, is irrelevant. They see your social security number, your income, and your debt service. And that's what the decisions are based on. Period. It, does, it doesn't matter if, if, if you're from, if you're from Iran or you're, you came from Screven County, Georgia. It doesn't matter. The, the bank does, does, it has no way of, of even looking at that. Because the banker that you sit in front of when you fill out the application isn't the person making the decision. And I assure you, I <laughs> at no point is a, is a branch banker calling underwriting and saying, hey, let me tell you what this guy looks like. Mm-hmm. It's just not a conversation that happens. And, you know, you know Connie is, is still in banking. Uh, my mother was in banking. I was in banking. This is, these are conversations that do not happen. But even if even if somebody has some 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 deep feelings or whatever about a certain race, they sure as hell don't discuss it. But it's unfortunate that I mean, criti- so the argument right now is that critical race theory is not being taught in schools now, and that you know Trump had the executive order prohibiting it and um, prohibiting contractors and and just entities in general from. Um, talking about divisive concepts of on race or sex. Um, but we all know that like individual teachers have these types of conversations or when given the opportunity, the conversations come up and I, I kind of hold the position like that's a risk you take when you, you send your child to pri- to public school. Like you don't know what you're getting. Um, Every public every public school system is different, and it depends on the the students that are in the classroom. That said, you know, it's not an it's not an irrational argument to be concerned that we're teaching children that you know something that happened in the 1930s is still happening today when it is just not. Look, you need to be teaching kids how to balance your bank account. Soft skills, but the importance of showing up on time when you go to a job interview, how to dress uh, needs to be taught in some some of these programs. The, the, they need to, be t- need to be teaching math, reading, critical thinking, science. The these the the core knowledge 
that every functioning adult needs to have before they get out of high school. Well, you get into the conversation of like the uselessness of some public schools, especially when they're not teaching those things. But like, I guess the question I have is should like, what do you do when you have a school that is truly diverse and you have, you know, 50% of the the families want you to teach this and 50% that don't like, what do you do? You know, that's where critical thinking comes in is allowing kids to express their opinion on things is depending on the class. And obviously as, as they grow more towards, towards being a senior in high school and then moving on, moving on to college, if they're going to go to college or moving on to trade school or moving on to, to, to working is allow, allow them to have the, the conversation but it needs to, needs to be had with context. It needs to be context, factual context. This was back in the 30s. Nobody who was de- denied a loan in 1930 is alive today to be impacted by it. You know, that's 90 years ago. And it's okay to teach that redlining happened. But you also have to teach what we did to correct it and what what the society did to correct it and why it's no longer viable. Right, but what I'm saying is when you talk about the one that's like present day about the zoning and the single family home standard to keep, you know, majority white neighborhoods white, what do you do when you have a diverse district and, and part of the district thinks that this that is exactly what is happening and part of it doesn't what do you do you have to teach facts but, this is an this is an opinion that counties that counties use zoning the fact is counties don't like well, apartments because of because of the load on the school systems but to play devil's advocate you can easily say that it's an opinion that it's not happening for that reason i mean like Consider the MARTA conversation, you know, how many years have have North Fulton neighborhoods opposed MARTA coming to their neighborhoods? Oh, that's true. And, and it's and, but, but that's a that's a that's a conversation to have, but it does not need to be in the curriculum. And this is this is these are conversations that are better had at the college level. Where you've got uh, kids who are a little more mature, uh, and they can have they can have honest conversations and talk about this stuff. This is definitely not something that needs to be taught in public schools. You think college kids are having critical thinking conversations like this? It depends on the college, I reckon. Some of the dumbest kids I've ever met coming out of college. <laughs> they have absolutely no skills other than to like hit play on TikTok. Yeah, cram for a test, uh, pass a test, and the knowledge just leaks out of their ears. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess, but it's but but the idea is that a kid at twenty or or twenty two as a senior in college is is going to better be able to process the information and have and have a a conversation on it uh, than you know somebody a kid in middle school that's having this crammed down their throats and. Their their lifelong opinion being shaped by it for the next 70, 80 years. 
It's an indoctrination. But it's also one of the reasons that I, I, I prefer a, a private school model. Let parents shop the schools that, that they think best fit their values. Yeah. But, we, you know, we have critics at the Heritage Foundation uh, recently attributed uh, a whole host of issues to CRT, including the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests, the LGBTQXYZ uh, clubs and schools, diversity training in federal agencies and organizations, California's recent uh, ethnic studies model curriculum, the free speech debate on college campuses, and the alternatives to exclusionary discipline. It's a mouthful. Yeah, I I guess I guess I just like one of the biggest things I don't understand is, um, like. Why so many people are having an opinion on this? Like, like I don't like I, I agree that it's a con it's a it's a controversial topic from whatever side you're coming at it from. Like if you think that these things are rampant in our communities and they're not being talked about, you're passionate about that. If you think that it's all a bunch of horse manure and you're outraged that your child is being subjected to it, I get it. Like I, I, I see both sides of why everyone is so heated about it. But like people are meddling in this that have absolutely no like Chris Carr and nineteen other attorneys general. Like what what who cares? And then we have uh, Kemp, who penned a letter to the Department of Education a couple weeks ago. Yeah, which, you know, he he basically said, I've talked to people and they don't want this. And so I am I want you to oppose the Biden administration's, um, you know, push to use tax dollars to to push this agenda. And, you know, the State Board of Education like we're not talking about the DOE, we're talking about the State Board of Education is a bunch of political appointees. And the day we recorded this last Thursday, um, the Board of Education actually met for a special called meeting to publicly issue a statement opposing or, you know, uh, to publicly oppose critical race theory, which is hilarious to me because you're talking about a board of people who were appointed by the governor and the governor put out a statement saying, I hope you you are against this. And so then they voted to be against it. And then he sent out a press release and was like, look, they're against it. And I am happy about it. Like at that point, it's posturing and it's 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 you, you're not accomplishing anything. The fact that the state board of education is against it and that Brian Kemp is against it have absolutely no bearing on what happens. Right. And the, the problem I have with with that is trends are cyclical when it comes to politicians. And we may very well be looking at a Governor Abrams or somebody from, from her, her, her school of thought. And she gets her own appointees in there. And they they reverse course on, on it. It's I, I don't like governance by by edict. But, you know, our state lawmakers are getting involved, too. We have uh, Senator uh, Michelle Al. All right. Quote, fact, systematic racism has shaped the history of this country. Facts are nonpartisan. But the suppression and distortion of facts and creation of culture of boogeymen to message on that distortion 
may well be. What? Yeah, and I read it verbatim. Yeah. And look, there's nobody, nobody is saying that the, the, that our history hasn't shaped the country. And I think we're better for it. For having the, the intestinal fortitude to look back at our history and go, man, that, that was wrong. Jim Crow was wrong. And we can look back and say that, but this idea that you have a, a, permanent victim class in this country is not productive to the country. It's not productive to, to say it's not your fault. It's because of a policy uh, from 90 years ago that you're, that you're having troubles. And this goes back to your, the, the earlier statement that this is about results driven instead of opportunity driven, that it takes out individuals, desire and willingness to work hard and, and do whatever that you are permanently a victim. And I appreciate that they're honest about it. I mean, truly. But you know, it's, it is, it is a tough conversation for, for us to have. And I, and I'm not unaware of the irony of, of the two of us talking about it. Uh, yeah, but I don't understand why, like, there is, I, I understand what you're saying, but at, at some point, like, it, that just has to be ignored because I'm impacted. Like, th this theory is dictating my beliefs, like, and, and, and the, the world that I live in. They're, they're saying that I, am, that I am not capable of living any other way than the way that they have defined Right. It is a, it's a victim mentality that I don't accept. You know, it's like the cartoon that, that makes his way around and they, and they change it from time to time. And you see a guy on a bicycle and he sticks a stick in the spokes and then falls over and blames somebody else for it. Just that I, I am the master of my destiny. I am a culmination of my experiences and my choices. I can't. I cannot exclude the the advantages that that I've had in life with with good, hardworking parents that taught me uh, the value of hard work. I understand that I'm, I'm a I'm a culmination of their hard work, the the first the first eighteen years that they were trying to keep me out of prison. But I, I'm a culmination of my experiences and and my choices. Were they all good? No, of course not. I was an idiot. I'm still an idiot from time to time. But all those all those choices, all those experiences shape who I am, not the the randomness of my of how I looked when I was born. Which was stunning. I was a stunning child. Well, the irony is that they say there's no biological difference in race, but then constantly discuss white privilege and and all these things that supposedly make us inherently different and uh, right is say that there's there's no difference biologically but you're wrong because of how you're born look i don't remember making that choice 
I don't, re- I don't remember before I was being born picking out which parents I was going to have. You know, we don't have any choice in that. All we can, all we can do as individuals, and that's where liberty-minded people like you and me come at it is it's up to the individual to, to, to make your choices in life, to, to better yourself. We have volumes of stories of people in this country that were born disadvantaged and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps to become something. Colin it's, Powell, for one. I mean, if, 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 you've ever, if you've ever read his autobiography, it's amazing. I mean, he came from, from poor, a poor background to be the, the, one of the most powerful men in our government, certainly the most powerful man in the military. It is a, it is a great autobiography, by the way. Yeah, you're endorsing it. I I am. It was it was it was a very good read. It was a good read. I uh, I when I read, I, I read for information. I, I I I'm not a big fiction reader, even though I did reference Douglas Adams before. That's because I'm a nerd. So Jessica, do you have any closing thoughts as we're as we're uh, in danger of running long? No, because yours is positive, and I feel like I should defer to you to. I want to wish a very happy 56th anniversary to my parents. Uh, if they can raise uh, four heathens like us and stay together for better than half a century, uh, obviously they're doing something right. Or my mother has Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know. So for Eric Cumbie, our editor, for Jessica Slodgy, my partner in crime, I'm Dave Roberts. Have a great week. <laughs>